This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Two candidates for major offices in Colorado could be left off the June primary ballot because of questions about the signatures they gathered to qualify. On Tuesday, Republican Walker Stapleton, a frontrunner in the governor's race, asked that his signatures be voided, saying the company that collected them may have done so improperly. Meanwhile, a legal challenge against Republican Congressman Doug Lamborn could keep his name off the ballot for the same reason. A Denver judge said Lamborn could stay, but the case may be on its way to the state Supreme Court. Well, the man who oversees Colorado's elections and the ballot process is Secretary of State Wayne Williams. And welcome to the program, Wayne. Thanks for having me on again. It's good to be here. For both Stapleton and Lamborn, it's not the authenticity of the signatures that's in question, but that they may have been gathered improperly. Right. As I said, your office oversees the integrity of elections. What do you say to folks who signed petitions for these candidates in good faith, believing their voices would be heard? So the issues are actually slightly different in the two cases. Uh, the question raised with respect to the petitions gathered uh, by circulated by uh, Doug Lamborn uh, and by the firm he used is whether the circulators were Colorado residents. No. And you have to be. In order. And you have to be a Colorado resident, according to the law. Uh, the judge reviewed each of those, made a fact-based determination, found that all of them except one counted as Colorado residents, and therefore he was on the ballot. Uh, and you pointed out correctly that we do something different this year and implicit, but so your listeners know. Uh, we have, uh, for the first time under new law, we're actually checking before signatures. we get here. I, I wanted to. I want, I want yeah. you to address those folks who signed petitions, sure. and who are thinking right now, Walker Stapleton may not be on the primary ballot. So Walker's position is different. In Walker's case, uh, the allegation uh, or the report is that there were individuals who were circulators who weren't actually the circulator that someone else signed as the circulator for the person who actually gathered the petition signatures. That's clearly not allowed under Colorado law under any circumstance. It's never been allowed, never been allowed in another state either. Uh, and, and so part of the, the process and the reason that's there is to ensure that someone uh, isn't coerced, isn't misled in terms of what they're signing, you can't put a petition in front of someone and say, this is to make you know, all toll roads go away uh, and then have it be a candidate petition. So you have to have a uh, legitimate basis uh, and you have to conduct the circulation honestly. And what do you say to voters who may be frustrated right now? I, I think you have every right to be frustrated uh, when a contractor for a candidate doesn't do what they should do. Uh, and that's part of the challenge in a process where you hire other people to do the work for you. There are some candidates who do almost all of the circulation themselves. And so Larry Liston, when he ran for the state house against an incumbent a couple years ago, circulated almost all of those himself. He had over a 90 percent accuracy rate. Uh, is what I hear you saying that you think the system worked in this case uh, and that this is the logical outcome when there are questions? Um, or are you perhaps questioning 
whether those signatures, especially for Walker Stapleton, should have been certified by your office in the first place because there was controversy brewing before you did. So we have to make decisions based on the information available to us at the time. And as the judge noted in the Lamborn case where a judge has actually ruled, we did what we were supposed to. Uh, when there is extraneous information, information that is not on the face of the petitions, that's something that has to be resolved in a court of law because my office is charged with checking the facial – in other words, checking to see if the person appears on the registration books. Uh, that's our job. If someone wants to bring a challenge and saying even though they appear on there, that's not really what happened – that's a different process that's set forth in the law. You're talking about the appearance and the validity of the signatures versus a more fundamental questions about what you call the circulators, the people gathering the signatures. Does there need to be a change in some regard uh, when it comes to these contractors, when it comes to these signature gatherers? So I would like, I think in a perfect world for me, I would have some changes in that. But the challenge here is the First Amendment, same right that protects this station and all the others, also gives the right to petition. And the Supreme Court and federal courts applying that have very much limited the types of restrictions that states can impose upon those who circulate petitions. And so we have to make sure that whatever we do to address these circumstances comports with the Constitution what and is that it, First Amendment. What is a change you'd like to see? So – I'm not enamored with a pay-per-signature because I think that incentivizes people, but I think courts have said you can't restrict that, at least in some circumstances. So I, I think one of the things we did last time is we worked with the legislature to pass signature verification. Uh, this arose in the John Kaiser case where a circulator had forged some names to make some additional money. Right. I'll say that the legislature passed a law after – that election in which there were forgeries that directed your office to beef up verification. Right. And we were the initiator of that law. We worked to get that passed. Uh, so that was one of the changes. I think after this cycle, we'll go back, we'll look at it, and we'll say, are there some ways to make it a better process? Uh, I think that's always part of what we do after each cycle is to say, how can we make it better? But you are fundamentally uncomfortable with the idea of paper signature. Will your office investigate Kennedy Enterprises in Colorado Springs, which may have gathered these signatures improperly? I'll say that the company's owner, Dan Kennedy, denies any wrongdoing. He told Colorado Politics, to the best of my knowledge, all of the petition circulators are Colorado residents and all of the signatures were gathered legally. Uh, would your office investigate this specifically? There may be lawsuits. So we refer matters to uh, law enforcement to do the investigation. We did that with the fraud that occurred on the fracking initiative last time, the fraud that occurred on the minimum wage uh, petition, and the fraud that occurred on the John Kaiser petition. Each of those cases, law enforcement prosecuted and received either a, a plea or a guilty verdict. Have you referred this one yet? Uh, that is in the process. That is in the process. It will take place? It will. And will that happen this week, do you think? Not sure on the timing. We've got to make sure we've got all the documents necessary in order to refer it over. Okay. Uh, briefly, along with issues on the Republican side, a Democratic candidate for attorney general filed a lawsuit claiming that the entire petition process is unconstitutional because signatures of unaffiliated voters don't count, even though this election, 
unaffiliated voters can vote in the primary. So what's what's your take on this fundamental question? And this will bring us, by the way, into the larger question of this primary in which about a million more Coloradans will take part. So I think it's ironic that an attorney general's candidate's first act is to sue to invalidate state law since he's running for a job where you're actually supposed to defend the state law. This is Brad Levin. Uh, so I think that's ironic. It's also ironic that he has waited until this very last minute because the law in Colorado has been consistent for a number of years in these areas. Uh, So he's not challenging anything new or any of the new processes. He's challenging things that have been in existence for at least a decade. Uh, I suppose the question, though, is does the new shape of the primary change things Uh, Yes, that may have been in place for decades. Now, the crafters of the initiative very carefully worded uh, their initiative in a way to say that once the parties choose who the candidates are in the primary, either through the caucus and assembly process or through the petition process, then unaffiliated voters have the opportunity to participate. So it is your assessment that just because unaffiliated voters can take part in the primary, that doesn't change the rules governing who can sign petitions. The law was very clear. It did not change those. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the Secretary of State in Colorado, Wayne Williams, specifically uh, in regards to the fact that he is the overseer of elections and ballots Uh, statewide in Colorado. And let's get to this idea that the primary is changing pretty fundamentally in Colorado this election with unaffiliated voters able to participate on June 26th. That means they're going to get in the mail two ballots. Do I have that right, Wayne Williams? You do. Uh, This is a new process. Uh, The voters approved it. Uh, We did a survey actually of unaffiliated voters. We found that less than half knew of this opportunity despite the initiative that was passed in 2016. And so we went to the legislature and said we would like to inform people of this opportunity. And we received approval uh, from both the House and the Senate and signed by the governor uh, to spend $900,000 on a public information campaign that does basically, Ryan, three things. The first. Why don't we just be the public information campaign right now? (laughs) We are. Okay. So I'd get two ballots in the mail. So first, you have the opportunity to participate. Yeah. That's the first thing to know. Second, uh, you have the chance, if you wish, if you know which party's primary you wish to vote in, you may pre-designate that at youchoose.co.gov. We'll post a link to that later today at cprnews.org. So I can say I want to take part in the Republican primary, the Democratic primary. I can't take part in both, correct? That is absolutely correct. In fact, there are Supreme Court cases that have said you can't do that. And the initiative very clearly said you must pick either the Republican or the Democratic ballot. That's why we said it's a you choose, you meaning the unaffiliated. And uh, we want them to know, and this is the important part of this, that you can't vote in both. And it's new because never before in history have we sent you a ballot and said, but don't return it. That is, if I don't pre-choose, I'm going to get the two ballots in the mail. I cannot fill them both out and send them back in. That would invalidate the, the ballots. Am I throwing away the other one? That seems like an interesting security question. You're throwing it away just like you do a ballot that's not returned. Okay. Uh, maybe, last, maybe tear that up? Tearing it up would be good. Hey, if you've got a shredder, that's probably what I might do. But because that ballot, in order to count, has to be returned with an envelope with the voter's signature, we're not as concerned. We send out mail ballots now to lots of people who don't vote no. them. 
that's that's not new. What well, is new is telling telling you even though you got two, you can only return one. Only you must one. choose. And these will go out automatically to Colorado's more than million unaffiliated voters. Yep. Okay. It, about 1.4 million at the beginning of June, probably about June 4th in most counties. Very quickly, what about uh, minor political parties? So if you uh, if a minor political party has a primary, you can choose to get that ballot. Uh, absent that, you will get the ones for the major parties. That's what the initiative provided. Thanks, Wayne Williams, for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate the chance. And remember, pick one or the other. You can't vote both. This is this is your drumbeat. He's Colorado's <laughs> Secretary of State, and uh, we will de- indeed post more information at CPR.org later today. It used to be that if you were in the middle class, you could comfortably sock away money into a college fund and pay down a credit card. Increasingly, that's becoming an either-or proposition for people who used to think of themselves as comfortable in Colorado. A new study from CU Denver looked at these kinds of household budget decisions with people across the state. Researchers say the results offer a picture of how life is changing in Colorado. I'm joined by Todd Ely and Jeff Profiter. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Great. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You presented some of your findings at a breakfast gathering last week in Denver. And Todd, you used a word to describe the feelings of a number of people in attendance hearing your rather sobering message. Uh, What was this word you used? Uh, It was uh, angst. Angst. (laughs) Why do you think they were feeling angst at this news? Well, you know, we uh, actually did kind of an informal survey of the uh, attendees of the event, and uh, they provided uh, quite a bit of feedback to us about how they're feeling about the being middle class or what middle class means. Yeah, what did you hear? Well, we heard uh, that there's just a, a lot of trade-offs, right, that families need to make in order to live what they had thought to be, uh, you know, a classic uh, middle-class lifestyle. And what are those trade-offs? Yeah, well, primarily, uh, you know, the the things that we hear about in the news and we, we talk to, you know, family and friends about constantly, you know, ho- housing, uh, home ownership, health care. And as you mentioned, you know, being able to save right for the future for retirement or for their their own children to go to college. And that that is becoming more difficult. So that was an informal survey. Mm-hmm. Uh, the headline on your formal study is that the middle class is shrinking in Colorado. Uh, but the definition of, of what it means to be middle class, I think, varies so much depending on whom you talk to. I understand that when you ask some people at the breakfast in Denver, uh, one of them wrote, I think that being middle class, if you live in Metro Denver, no longer means living a comfortable lifestyle. Me and many of my friends are well-educated, have relatively stable, okay-paying jobs, still feel like we live month to month. How are you defining middle class? Uh, So we we initially start off with the sort of the standard definition of middle class using an income based where we're going to define that uh, anyone is middle class if they're going to make a more than two-thirds of the median up to double of the median income. Okay. And we're looking at families, not individuals, not households. So what is that number range for a family in Metro Denver? And uh, for Metro, for well, this would be statewide. Okay. Um, for a two-parent, two-child family, it's going to range from uh, 68000 to 206000 Okay. And within that, within that middle class for that particular family type, 
you know, there's going to be, you know, lower middle and upper middle and then middle middle. Um, but but that that's the range. And if we think about a one parent, two child family, then that range falls even further down to about twenty eight thousand to eighty five thousand. Uh, well, sur- surely the higher end of the range you talked about there is a comfortable living. But what what do you find here that those maybe in the middle middle and the lower middle just are feeling the squeeze they didn't feel before? Yeah. And so, you know, what we did was uh, piece together kind of an aspirational middle class budget that represents, you know, kind of the, the classic items that people, you know, believe are kind of required, right, to, to, to be middle class. Run um, through a few of those. Yeah. So some of those, it's going to be, you know, secure housing. So it's going to be home ownership or rental. It's going to have be having health care, mm-hmm. a, a car for each adult, right? Uh, the ability to save for both retirement and for higher education for kids. Um, and then, you know, within that budget, there's also some items like vacation, right? Vacation's kind of a, a, a norm for the middle class. Um, and also then there's non-aspirational items like, you know, taxes and uh, uh, just, you know, food and the other items. And when you put that composite yep. together, mm-hmm. what do you find about the ability to attain that in Colorado right now? Yeah, we, we, we find, you know, that at the high end uh, with, you know, a, a family that has two adults, um, you can, right, achieve this middle class lifestyle. But for the lower end and kind of the middle, there's actually a fairly large gap, right, between the incomes of the family and these, you know, aspirational expenditures. And those gaps, you know, probably range uh, between 10 and 20 percent uh, of the income, you know, that the family currently makes. And is that a big change? from where this country, the state have been? Um, we, the, the data we looked at is primarily 2016. So to ask about this in terms of a change is in part anecdotal, but, but the, what we feel based on what we did see is yes, it has changed. When we define the middle income, the middle class squeeze, we're referring to the you know the quantity and quality of trade-offs that families are having to make to stay in that middle class income band. Trade-offs like what? Um, for instance, not having a vacation or not having as many vacations or taking a lower quality vacation in order to pay for child care or giving up future consumption in order to uh, in order to pay your you know your rent your utility bills and things like that future consumption would be your savings right so you're going to give up savings in order to pay down you know either existing debt which you know we found student loans debt for instance was one major uh, one major component that's eating up the middle class uh, budget staggering increases in student loan debt up more than 350% in 16 years is that right yeah, and those are uh, you know real uh, in inflation-adjusted dollars, and um, you know we we did look kind of at how these major aspirational uh, expenditures changed from 2000 to 2016, and you know what we note is you know higher education, uh, healthcare, uh, and and housing, right, have dramatically outpaced uh, the incomes of these uh, family types that we've looked at. I can imagine someone listening to this and having heard, you know, they don't take quite as good a vacation and thinking, (laughs) oh, poor those folks, Mm -hmm. right? Like we're in a community, especially in Metro Denver, where people are being pushed further and further out of the city because they can't afford where they live. Um, How much of the composite you drew is about... uh, 
aspiration, you, you use the word aspiration, you know, what I hope for myself versus the reality, how much of it is conspicuous consumption too? I mean, you, you talk about debt and, you know, there can be aspects of debt that are conspicuous. For sure. Um, you know, we really made an effort, um, you know, and, and this effort, you know, we've been working with uh, Bell Policy Center on, you know, what the, what the middle class is, what it means and what we want to in- investigate. And uh, we, we definitely don't, intend this to be paternalistic. We know that, you know, each family is going to come up with their own choices, right, based on their individual preferences. But what we did try to do is have a very realistic look at what people do spend and compare that to the incomes that are occurring. So you didn't factor uh, in, for instance, a boat. Or something. Yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah. We did not. I, you know, and, and uh, you know, these aspirations, uh, I think, you know, by historical standards would probably appear, you know, fairly modest and, and realistic. Um, and, you know, the way we build the budget is actually based on uh, the spending patterns of Coloradans, right, uh, based on a lot of uh, the data we've looked at. What is the takeaway from all of this? So I have heard that debt has increased in many regards, often related to higher education. I am hearing that people who may have been comfortable are now having to make trade-offs they didn't. Big picture, what are you saying about Colorado right now? Yeah, I, I you know, we've come to, you know, a couple, um, you know, major takeaways. You know, the first is that, you know, from a family perspective, the middle class is definitely declining, although it isn't, uh, you know, that dramatic a decline. Um, and we're kind of seeing that being offset, right, with increases in, in what would be defined as the lower and upper uh, income classes. Um, you know, maybe most important is is this notion that it, it is harder and harder to uh, live that middle class lifestyle, given the incomes that um, families are making in 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 the state, there's also yeah. quite a difference uh, if you're white versus if you're Hispanic, for instance. Yeah, race was a uh, race was a uh, in- interesting dimension when we sliced uh, the data for uh, for 2016. We uh, we saw that. Um, uh, amongst uh, self-identified white families, an increasing representation in each of the income class buckets. So, uh, income uh, lower, middle, and upper. As you increase in that uh, in that income range, there were greater concentration of white families. Um, when we looked at uh, the Hispanic population, which is the second largest population in the state, um, you see a decline as you go up in in income. Um, so that the concentration of Hispanic families in the upper income is much, much, much smaller than in the lower. And it's a large decrease. It gets halved about each time you go up. As you move up as in you, middle yeah. class. Uh, before we go, some quick details on this study. I want to say that the data comes from the Census Bureau's American Community Survey, basically a smaller sample of people than the actual census. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your study was commissioned, as you said, by the Bell Policy Center. It says its mission is to quote, ensure economic mobility for every Coloradan, unquote. The center has called for Tabor reforms, um, new programs in the state's education system, among other potential changes. Why do you think, just briefly, they hired you to do this? Yeah, well, you know, uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that, you know, there's been lots of national uh, research on the middle class. Uh, there's been a lot less at the state level and, uh, you know, even less so within Colorado. 
Um, but really, that their focus on economic mobility, right? It, it, it requires that you have a, you know a diverse and thriving middle class, and so uh, you know this study. I mean, the goal is really to to provide facts, uh, you know, around the middle class that that can inform you know policymakers, uh, you know, as they make tough decisions. And there will be more of the information you found out about the middle class in Colorado later today at CPR.org. That's Todd Ely and Jeff Profiter with CU Denver. Commissioned by the Bell Policy Center, they studied economic opportunity in Colorado and what it means to be middle class here. Still to come, how has renewable energy in Colorado fared under President Trump? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Renewable energy is strong in Colorado. The state now gets somewhere around 20 percent of its power from solar and wind. And when it it comes to jobs, the solar workforce grew more than 10 percent here in the last year. But will the sun continue to shine for this sector with an administration that's bullish on fossil fuels? Yesterday, we got a view on coal in the state. Today, Evelyn Carpenter, who is a member of the Colorado Renewable Energy Society, or CRESS, She's also founder and president of a renewables firm called Solos Energy Consulting. And welcome to the program. Very nice to be here, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Looking at those job numbers, they seem pretty strong for 2017, including 13% growth in solar. Uh, Yet the projections for this year tend towards flat. Why is that, do you think? Well, there's probably a couple reasons for that. Um, I think that the federal policy agenda um, has been developing over the last year. And so anytime you introduce uncertainty into a marketplace, it may slow things down. I think a lot of that uncertainty has actually been removed in first quarter of this year. And so I think we're going to still see some pretty strong job projections um, this year in both the wind and the solar industries. What was the uncertainty that people might have been waiting for to make hires to expand? Well, there was a couple of different things on the table. So um, one of them was the solar tariff. And in the solar industry, we knew it was coming. That's been in play for quite a while. We didn't know the extent of what the tariff would be. And so, um, you know, the industry has been waiting for that to develop. Um, and now we, we understand what that is and we'll know how to adapt to that. In, indeed. So it's 30 percent in the first year on solar panels, mm-hmm. correct, from China. Yeah, but it's, it only affects a certain technology. It's not all solar panel technologies. Okay. More broadly, the, the recently <laughs> announced tariffs on, on steel may affect renewable energy as well. It could potentially have an impact. Um, so when you look at wind turbines, as an example, um, the towers are generally made of steel. Sometimes there are concrete towers. Um, and so that may have an impact on pricing on wind, turbi- wind turbines specifically. A lot of the domestic manufacturers of towers use domestic steel. Huh. And so that may not have as much of an impact on the solar side. Uh, the racking that supports the solar panels themselves is either made of steel or aluminum. And so it could potentially have an impact on that as well. Um, but we're fairly early in in those tariffs and analyzing what they're going to be and the potential impacts. Okay. Give me another example of the uncertainty that has somewhat dissipated, you think. Mm-hmm. 
So um, when the tax bill was um, being shaped in fourth quarter of last year, um, there was a potential on the table for a change to our production tax credit, which is a multi-year production tax credit that uh, Renewable Energies enjoys. Back in 2015, um, legislation was put in place that basically ramps down that tax incentive over a period of five years. Um, it is phased out in 2020, and that was put on the table back in fourth quarter of last year. We had incredible bipartisan support in fourth quarter um, from both sides of the table, including our, our senators here in the state of Colorado, who really worked hard to make sure that that legislation was maintained. And so I would say in fourth quarter of last year, there was quite a lot of uncertainty around that, but that was eventually taken off of the table for us. Okay, so the idea is that the tax bill... Uh, was not a disaster for renewable not energy by not any means. Any, any other surprises perhaps coming from this administration? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because the Trump legislative priority is strongly about creating jobs, about um, economic development in rural communities, about energy security. And all of those items are very consistent with what renewables brings to our economy, especially in the state of Colorado. We have a tremendous amount of manufacturing in the state. We have over fourteen or 13,000 um, jobs in the state, and we're creating jobs at a record number nationally. And so... Do you, do you the, think that the administration acknowledges that? Do you feel heard there? You know, I think we as an industry could do a better job reaching out and educating the administration on the economic benefits that we are bringing to rural communities and the jobs that we're creating. You know, we, we could take more initiative there. Uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about cuts to NREL, the National mm-hmm. Renewable Energy Lab right here in Colorado. Uh, it seems to have been spared from draconian cuts. Uh, I wonder if, if you think that is calming to the industry, if not uh, maybe a force that might lead to some growth or confidence. NREL is an incredible resource for the renewable energy industry. They um, they incubate a lot of new technology for us, and they work with industry very closely, you know, to create economic development and growth. And so, you know, they're they're a leader in our community. They publish a lot of papers and do a lot of research, um, and they bring an awful lot to us. And so I think that would have a calming effect um, because they're such an important part of our industry. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, just yesterday, we spoke about the state of coal in Colorado. We are now getting a view of renewables in this state under the Trump administration. My guest is Evelyn Carpenter, who's on the board of the Colorado Renewable Energy Society, or CRESS. And I understand that um, this nonprofit you're a part of Mm -hmm. has seen a noticeable change in membership since President Trump's election. Tell me about that. Well, so CRESS is a community-based organization um, that, well, they they do a lot of, they work a lot with stakeholders. And so I think there's a lot of people within the Colorado community that really have an interest in renewables because we have so many jobs and so much economic development in the state associated with renewables. And so CRESS is a vehicle where people can come together and do education and provide um, uh, information on policy. And what have you noticed about your membership? Um, so it has been increasing um, since uh, since the Trump administration, but also jobs are increasing and, you know, interest in renewables in general is increasing as well. You talked about the connection to rural Colorado mm-hmm. in particular. My understanding is that when you look at solar versus wind, uh, it's a pretty interesting breakdown about which is the more urban job provider mm-hmm. and which is the more rural job provider. Break that down for us. 
Well, so wind projects are generally installed in more rural communities. You need a lot more land area to do that. Um, you don't do rooftop, as an example, wind. You do you do rooftop solar. And so the projects that you see are really more out in rural communities. In the state of Colorado, la- payments to landowners account for somewhere between uh, 5 and $10 million a year to farmers and ranchers. And that's creating real economic development in those communities. That is paying for the land to erect the wind turbine. Exactly. The companies lease that land from farmers and ranchers. Can you see that that's making a difference in rural Colorado? You talk about the money there. Has it changed life in those communities? It indeed has. Some of the projects I've worked on, and I'll give you an example in Texas of a project that I worked on. Um, we, you know, we contributed enough to the economy where the fire station was able to get new equipment, as an example. We bring in real tax dollars and real revenue where it's keeping communities together. It's providing funding for schools, things like that. Is it jobs, though? It is jobs as well. Yeah, the job creation for wind um, wind projects long term is around two jobs for every 10 to 15 wind turbines that are installed. The idea of maintenance, I guess. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it has a, a shelf life job wise beyond just erecting the wind turbine. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh, and by contrast, solar much more concentrated, as you say, in urban areas. Mm-hmm. Late last month, Governor John Hickenlooper signed a bill saying Coloradans have a right to install energy storage systems on their properties, uh, big batteries Mm -hmm. for solar panels and the like. And it directs the State Public Utilities Commission to adopt rules around installing and connecting these systems. Why is that an important step, do you think? Well, it's really important for a couple of reasons. And first off, let me clarify that legislation is applicable to utilities, not to municipals. Um, so, for example, the city of Fort Collins is a, is an electric service provider, and that's not an applicable um, policy for them. But what it does is it guarantees the right for um, consumers to put battery storage systems and it um, it basically puts legislation together that is consistent so that when you're going to install it, you don't have different legislation depending on the county that you're in. Uh-huh. It creates consistent rules. Give, give me a bigger picture uh, mm-hmm. sense of why this is important. Battery storage that's sort of all over a community, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, one, of the, um, one of the downsides with renewables is its intermittency. And so you know, we we work with that and we work with utilities to try to take some of the intermittency of the resource out of our system. And batteries is a really good way to help deploy more renewables because it helps to um, alleviate some of the intermittency because you can store the energy and dispatch it at a later time. When the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. Thanks for being with us, Evelyn. Very nice to be here. Thank Evelyn you. Carpenter of the Colorado Renewable Energy Society. You can hear our conversation about how another energy source, coal, has fared under President Trump at CPR.org. One hundred forty rattlesnakes. That's how many Kate McHale reportedly killed near Greeley in 1925. Now, this story made national news and earned her the name Rattlesnake Kate. It has also inspired new music from a member of the Denver band, The Lumineers. She saw just one snake, then two, then ten, pulled out a twenty-two rifle, and the massacre began. Before too long, she had no bullets left, grabbed a sign right out of the ground, and clobbered them to death. 
This is Neela Pekarik, and she's here to share some of this new music before you can hear it anywhere else. The album is called Rattlesnake, a nod to what happened to this infamous Kate McHale that day. Welcome to the program, Neela. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a treat. She later used the name Kate Slaughterback, so you might hear that in this conversation. Walk us through this actual event. It sounds pretty dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, so October 28th, 1925, she was out with her son, who was three years old. They are on horseback and uh, gathering these wounded ducks to bring home for dinner and encountered this rattlesnake migration. Um, and I, you know, I picture this three-year-old, which they're, they're pretty mobile at that age, and she's got him just 60 feet away. And I think that maternal instinct just kicked in, and she started killing as many snakes as possible. And it took her two hours, but she walked away fine and dandy and <laughs> collected the skins and then fashioned herself a dress from the dead snakes. I never thought of the terror of a herd of snakes until now, so thank you for that. Indeed. How much of the rattlesnake story is true? I mean, it sounds almost mythical. Sure. I mean, it's her, her word against anyone else's. She was, she was there by herself that day. But um, the dress you can still see in the Greeley Museum, so there's at least proof of that. Okay, the dress <laughs> exists. Yes. Is this something that you would hope to dawn someday. I guess that's just not possible. <laughs> it looks very fragile. They keep it in the dark in a, in a case, and then you can press a button to see it. But um, I, uh, I was fortunate enough, my mom's neighbor is a costume designer for the Boulder Dinner Theater, and she made me a faux rattlesnake dress a to wear rattlesnake yeah, dress. for my uh, live performances. <laughs> so rattlesnake Kate is somewhat of a folk legend in northern Colorado. Mm -hmm. How did you discover her story and, and how did you work to verify as much as you could about it? Yeah, um, so I was a student up at the University of Northern Colorado and uh, Greeley isn't exactly the college town that maybe Boulder is or Fort Collins and so you have to get creative how to stay entertained. And so my roommate at the time and I, we got really into Greeley's history and we went to the Greeley History Museum and they have a lot of preserved old homes from the founders of Greeley and that type of thing. And came across this story and just became obsessed with this woman. <laughs> and wasn't quite sure how to channel that at first. Um, but being a musician, I thought something musical was going to happen out of it. But it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I really dove in um, and started writing these songs. Uh, and I made multiple trips up to the museum where they have all of her kind of a collection of her belongings um, that you can you can peek through and you have to wear these gloves because it's all very... Uh, fragile. And um, so I just went up a bunch of times and, and researched that way. And there were newspaper accounts mm -hmm. of this encounter. Indeed. And yeah, like you said, it's sort of uh, folklore in, in Greeley. So, um, and you know, 1925 wasn't terribly long ago. So I think there there were some people around that um, the, the story had been passed on. So <laughs> what did you learn about Kate McHale other than the fact that she killed 140 rattlesnakes? There's, what kind of a person was she? Was? Yeah, there's so much to her life, um, many layers. And so what drew me in was the, the snake attack. But then going through her materials, um, she had a 40-year love letter correspondence with this colonel who lived in Iowa. And he read about her story in his local paper and wrote her what was essentially a fan letter and thus blossomed this exchange of, of letters back and forth, and they never met. 
Um, but within those letters, I learned a ton about her life, and it was cool to read it from her perspective. And so, um, you know, she ran her own farm. She was married and divorced six times. She built her own farmhouse and lived in a chicken coop while she did it. Um, she was a nurse and often provided kind of the only medical assistance in her rural area. Um, it was a lot. This track is called Train Song, and I understand that you approached it with musical theater in mind. Indeed. I, uh, I love musicals, <laughs> and um, actually went to school initially for musical theater before getting a music education degree. Um, but I think the story, you know, it really lent itself to that type of music, and it's music that I love. Um, but this sort of felt like a big opening number of wide-eyed and ready, ready for the next step in life. And she was ready for that? Um, in my perspective, yeah, I think she had a lot of hopes and dreams of, of leaving Colorado, of doing a lot more with her life. Um, and she, uh, she lived in El Paso for a short period of time, but otherwise she didn't spend much time away from Colorado. Um, but I, you know, and this, this is also kind of a new journey for me and a new, a new step in my life. And so I felt like it's almost my, my opening number as well in ways. That is not just being a part of the Lumineers, but doing a solo album. And it's, it's a big deal to commit to a full album about really one person. Indeed, yeah. And I, I think it wasn't always the plan. I, I wrote the attack first, just kind of as more of a joke. I was kind of joking around. and This then, was about the snake attack. And uh, quickly stopped joking um, about it. But I think once I did find those letters and, and so much more to her life, it, it, the songs just kind of poured out from there. I want to go back to this love letter question. Sure. Which shows up, this this long-distance love affair in Kate McHale's life. Tell me more about it. Who who was he? Yeah, so uh, Curl, uh, his uh, name was, he was a colonel, uh, Charles D. Randolph, and he called himself Buckskin Bill. I think because she had a cool name like Rattlesnake Kate, he wanted one too. <laughs> oh, so he adopted, okay, this, yeah. is, this is not one you assigned him, got right. it. Right, and in fact, there's another Buckskin Bill that is not the same person, and so I don't know if he borrowed it from him. He was also a big fan of Buffalo Bill and really modeled himself after him. Um, but yeah, they, he, he promises over and over to come visit. And at one point he gets married and encourages her to continue writing the letters, but to send them to a PO box so his wife doesn't get upset. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, the perspective of Buckskin Bill appears on this album. It sure does. Thanks to a male vocalist. I know. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Neela Pekarik of the Lumineers, who's embarking on a solo project about this incredible woman in Colorado history, Kate McHale, also known as Kate Slaughterback. She was introduced to the story when she heard about how Kate killed 140 rattlesnakes near Greeley in 1925, but uncovered so much more about her life, including her love life. So this song, Scoundrel, 
is based in history, and yet you use the word like mansplain. <laughs> it's so it's so modern in that regard. Certainly. You didn't find that in the letters, <laughs> I'm guessing. I sure didn't. And I think a lot of these songs um, aren't necessarily a history lesson um, fully. There's there's some history in it, but I think it's all through my perspective of what I, I took from it when I read them. Okay, so there's a little bit of history and then a little bit of your literary imagination. Sure. I'd like to have you set up another track for us called Perfect Gown. Yeah, I thought there was something very symbolic and even a little heartbreaking um, that she did have this full life with so many layers and this kind of souvenir left behind was something she wore and it's kind of how she's remembered as something very sort of superficial. Um, We're talking about the snake skin coat dress. dress. Yes, indeed. Um, and I understand why that's, why that's left behind uh, <laughs> because it's so interesting. However, um, it's just a, a bigger idea of, you know, being kind of summed up by the way you look. And, um, you know, I've experienced that a lot being in the industry that I'm in, that sometimes my male counterparts don't experience the same same things I do. Um, as far as, you know, trying to negotiate something, um, a quick anecdote, I, I was in a meeting trying to talk about tour dates and our schedule was crazy. And, you know, I was struggling a little bit mentally and physically. And I, I said, you know, I'd love to have less on the schedule or whatever. And the person said, well, I think you know, you can buy all these pretty dresses if you keep doing this, which felt so belittling and condescending to me. Because you were talking about your health, your, exactly. your mental health, and the idea was, but a pretty dress will solve it. Right, exactly. And oh. I think, you know, a lot of people are summed up by the way they look on the outside. So this is kind of that idea in that song. you say to that person who said, but you can get so many pretty dresses? Honestly, it sort of just shut me down and I felt so uncomfortable in what I was wearing at the time and just felt like I have to, I have to be aware of that. Um, you know, and I'm, which again, I don't think my male counterparts feel that way where they don't, it doesn't matter what they wear when they go into a meeting. Um, so. I, I think what I love about this story overall, the, the story behind Rattlesnake, Neela Pekarik, is that uh, the inspiration for an entire album might just be somewhere around the corner. It, it doesn't take um, anything but a, a, maybe a second's ignition to start a whole new project. Certainly. Yeah, and I think, you know, coming at it from this historical story that I was really inspired by, and then it's an, a really cool way to write because you're sort of writing behind this mask of this other person's life, but you end up writing about your own stuff as well. I also feel that, that people today listen to tracks, not albums. Sure. So how difficult is it to create an album with a whole story arc, right, and characters, <laughs> and then 
know that it, there might be one breakout track or something. Yeah, I just can't think there's about seven, it. Really. 17 songs are going to be on this album, right? <laughs> I hope so. Okay. <laughs> That's the goal. Yeah, there's three sort of interludes, kind of mood setters. But yeah, I uh, I do think about that. I, or I'm sorry, I don't really think about that going into it. I think I just wanted to write a story. And if there's songs that stick out, that's great. Um, but I'll probably release it on vinyl, so you have to listen to the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> and you'll have to go over Midway and switch the right. sides. Uh, you're shopping this around to different record labels. Indeed. And I understand you want to turn this into a stage production as well. That's the goal, yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing it with us. It's been really fun to talk to you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's Neela Pekarek, a member of the Colorado band The Lumineers, and we've gotten a first listen to her forthcoming solo record, Rattlesnake. She's given us a full track that we'll post to CPR.org. Warner, that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR News. Um.